Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Parasol Podcast on a Tuesday. We're going to talk some USC football recruiting with our buddy, our pal, Gerard Martinez. Follow him on Twitter at Gmart Live. He's dropping all kinds of knowledge bombs on uscfootball.com. Go to the Parastyle. Answering all of your USC football questions. We've, I think of the last couple of weeks we've had Gerard in. There's a lot of recruiting questions coming in. Of course, recruiting is certainly heating up for the Trojans, and we wanted to get all the updates from Gerard. Gerard, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, we're trying to juggle Christmas here with the busy time of recruiting, so it's always uh, a little little more stressful in the holiday uh, stretch here until we end up on the other side of New Year's, and then we go to San Antonio, and then all hell breaks loose as we're in January, and we come out of the dead period and have that final home run to signing day, 2017. It is a it is a crazy time of year for us in this business, and it is Christmas, uh, Christmas time, holiday time. Hope you guys are enjoying the holidays. If you have, if you need some shopping ideas, Gerard, I got some ideas for you. Our buddies over at Mac Weldon, um, great stuff. So we've talked about them before. Uh, basically, premium uh, clothes and underwear for men but if it's it's a they have some really cool stuff on their website macweldon.com uh packages up some uh goodies for you socks or um you know underwear or you kind of combine them together and they come in this cool little bag so they're pretty cool if you need some sort of gift for uh a man in your life or yourself you want to get yourself something cool you can go to macweldon.com and actually anyone uh listens to the parastyle podcast you can get 20% off your order there. So it's kind of cool. You get these packages, uh, from Mac Weldon where they give you a discount, but then you also get the peristyle discount 20% off. Go to, go to the site and then use promo code, uh, peristyle, but it's high quality stuff. It's better than whatever you're wearing right now. Whoever you get it for, if you get it for yourself, you get it for someone else. Uh, they're going to love it. They got, uh, underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, sweatpants, the best kind of stuff you're ever going to wear. So it's really cool. And I'm going to get some stuff. Uh, you know, I obviously get stuff for myself. I love it, but. I'm going to get some uh, gifts from Mac Weldon and use my own code twenty to get 20% off at the end. So, Gerard, I don't know if you need any holiday shopping advice, but you can do MacWeldon.com. Well, now I know what I'm getting from Christmas <laughs> from Ryan Abraham. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan just revealed it. He just showed his hand. That's why I asked you what your size was, you know. So when we go, we're on the road together, I can, like, look in your, in your you know, on the tags of your clothes. So I, I don't need to ask you. Okay, this conversation has just gotten weird. <laughs> we usually, you know, we share a room on the road. I'm not going to be with you, though, down in San Antonio. I'm going to be covering the Rose Bowl. So Gerard and Shotgun will be down there in San Antonio for the Army game. So you're going to miss me down there, Gerard. Yeah, yeah, Shotgun Spratlin. We're going out to uh, freeze our butts off in San Antonio. Not, not Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's actually okay. Um, kind of hit and miss. But uh, going back to San Antonio and uh, – Hitting uh, the Blossom Field, the Blossom Athletic Center, which is where the West team practices. And, um, yep, yep, 
we uh, we just what this eight years in a row running now doing the doing Army All American game, so it's kind of old hat. Yeah, we we know the area well. Our favorite little restaurants and stuff. You, you know, head down to the um the River Walk and do all the other stuff too. But uh, so just real quick before we get into everything, um, bunch of USC guys going to be there. Targets, uh, uh, commits. What's what's the kind of scoop on that? Yeah, there'll be uh, quite a few USC uh, targets. Um, you know, obviously with USC at this point only having 13 uh, commitments in the 2017 class, you're really looking at more targets than you are actual commitments. But, you know, certainly the one big commit that everybody will want to see will be Stephen Carr, uh, the five-star running back out of Summit High School that's been committed to USC for, you know, about two years now. And um, he's going to be an interesting player to really watch. Um, one of the guys that's going to actually announce at the game January 7th and the Alamo Dome is going to be Darnay Holmes, a five-star cornerback from Calabasas High School, number one rated cornerback in the nation, um, just uh, officially visited USC uh, about a week ago. It was one of those kind of weird Sunday, Monday, Tuesday visits, kind of a midweek visit, and um, a lot of chatter, you know, this week about him and, and you know, being down at UCLA, USC, and Ohio State, and a lot of people feeling like Ohio State maybe has the best shot at him, that maybe he's leaning towards Ohio State. I still find that hard to believe, I think, with his family and everything, wanting him to be close to home. I think eventually he really is end up picking between USC and UCLA, and um, I think USC definitely is in it. I think there's a chance that he ends up uh, at USC as a Trojan, um, I don't think anybody thought USC could close the gap on UCLA. I don't think anybody thought anybody could close the gap on UCLA, but obviously UCLA had a bad season, and, and the direction of the program has sort of been questioned. Um, and I think that the options there with USC looking like, you know, they might go on a run here, um, getting into the Rose Bowl, and, and certainly with Ohio State, you know, the amount of NFL prospects that they put into the draft last year, and Urban Meyer has obviously been successful there. Um, that's a pull in and of itself. But, again, his mom and his sister didn't make that official visit to Ohio State. And I think for them being a big part of this process, uh, it ended up coming down to USC and UCLA. So he's going to actually announce at the game itself. Uh, you're also going to have a safety, Bubba Bolden, four-star from Bishop Gorman out there in Vegas. He's a guy that was going to actually announce his commitment at the game, but now it seems like he's going to push it back. He's going to officially visit uh, USC, I think it's January 14th or the 20th. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he's going to take that official visit to USC in January, and USC looking like they're in good shape with him. He's a guy that actually was committed to USC over the spring, uh, was the first commitment that Clay Helton actually had as a head coach for USC. Uh, so sort of emblematic of USC's turnaround. You know, USC yeah. <laughs> starts the season off uh, bad, and they start losing commitments. Uh, but you turn it around, you know, during the season and uh, recruit harder at the postseason. You know, they've, I think, renewed that communication with Bubba Bolden, didn't have a great relationship with defensive backs coach Ronnie Bradford. And I think that was a big issue, and, and USC sort of helped correct that during the season. And certainly the way they played on the field, I think, gave uh, a guy like Bubba Bolden a lot more confidence in, in the stability of the coaching staff, certainly. And so um, he's a guy that, you know, we're going to watch. It could be a guy that ends up getting a five-star from his performance out in San Antonio. We'll see. So there's going to be uh, 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 several, several players out there, uh, probably a dozen targets that could end up, you know, officially visiting USC. We're going to kind of see how that shakes out. 
Um, it's uh, one of those things that you get a lot of kids when they come down to San Antonio, they want to talk about visiting USC. It's kind of a flashy, yeah, I'm going to Los Angeles type thing. The guys that actually end up making those flights, though, sometimes it's a different story. So uh, we have to sort of weed through the guys that like to talk a big game about visiting USC, especially the guys from back east and the kids that are actually seriously considering USC. Well, you met some of the guys you mentioned, and you know, I forgot to mention at the top of the show, if you want to contact us, peristylepodcast.com, podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. You can uh, send us your emails and stuff and all the contact. You will, you can leave voicemails, too. All of that is on our website, peristylepodcast.com. But uh, on uscfootball.com, on the front page, Gerard has a great piece, uh, 10 of Troy. Um, so it's it's ranking like basically the 10 most talked about uncommitted players on USC's recruiting board. You mentioned a couple of them. They're going to be down at the the Army game, but just look glancing down the list. I mean, I think when player when uh, USC fans were looking at the commit list for a while, you know, they saw a lot of three star dudes. There's a lot of four and five star guys on this ten of Troy list. It looks like uh, if they can get some of these guys, USC would be in pretty good shape. Yeah, USC would be in incredible shape if they were able to close with the majority of them. Um, the ten of Troy always is sort of an interesting way. To rank these players, it, it, it takes into account really what, who the fan base is talking about, you know, the buzz factor of these recruits, um, the guys that uh, USC fans really want to talk about, and it combines that with the guys that USC has a legitimate shot at and the guys that they're legitimately involved with. So you're sort of, you know, juggling the priority uh, list of the fans of who they feel is important, who's getting the most buzz, who they're talking about, and why they're talking about that particular recruit, but then also taking into account the guys that are legitimately looking at USC. I mean, you could just list the top ten recruits in the nation and say, oh, that's a wish list, uh, but some of those guys USC is not even recruiting, and obviously those kids USC is not one of the schools that they're considering, so that you know really doesn't make sense. And just a pure wish list in and of itself yeah, it doesn't really do anybody any good either. It's, it's, there's not a lot of insight into saying, yeah, USC fans want, you know, the three top defensive tackles in the nation. Well, of course they do. Every fan base does. Uh, so we're kind of taking into account the potential that USC has with those p- players in terms of signing them, um, in addition with the players that the USC fan base thinks is really important. So, you know, I kind of watch the peristyle and I know who will the, you know, the questions that I have to answer about which recruits um, you know, during the course of, um, you know, each month. And so it's sort of a ranking in that way and, and talking about the need factor and talking about why some of these players are important over others and sort of how the rankings go. And so uh, we put that out last, uh, well, just this past week, and we'll probably have another one coming in towards the end of signing day because a couple of these guys are going to announce pretty soon. You're going to have uh, Leighton, Utah, four-star athlete um, Taylor Katoa, who's going to actually make his announcement tomorrow, uh, sounds like he's between Utah and USC. That's what we've been hearing. Um, Utah is getting a lot of buzz right now. I, I think Utah might end up being the pick, which would be tough for USC because they just don't have a lot of inside linebacker prospects right now, and they haven't cultivated a lot of prospects in terms of new offers. And We may see that right after Katoa's decision. If he doesn't pick USC, USC is going to need to scramble a little bit. They're going to need to find some local guys that um, they can plan B on. Um, they may still have their eyes on some guys nationally, but again, I don't see anybody that's jumping off the screen uh, other than Levi Jones, uh, 6'2", 6'3", 215-pound linebacker from Austin Westlake High School in Austin, Texas, and he's one guy, and you know, USC's obviously lost Michael Hutchings, 
um, to graduation. They'll lose uh, Quentin Powell, and basically they're going to be left with uh, Cameron Smith, who's going to be a junior, and then you're going to have behind him John Houston, and uh, I think Jordan Nasefa is now moved to middle linebacker uh, where he's playing outside linebacker at the beginning of the season. So the depth position uh, that USC is in is not great, an inside linebacker, and you've got two inside linebackers that you're playing in most situations. Uh, it's not a position where, you know, if you're playing a 4-3 and you had one Mike linebacker, you know, maybe you only have three guys on the depth chart, you'd be okay. But you, you're working with the with the two inside linebacker system uh, with Clancy Pendergast's defense, you gotta you have a little more depth there, I think. And so uh, I I really think USC is going to sign two uh, inside linebackers in this class. And like I said, right now Levi Jones is really the only guy that I see that projects at that position. Um, they also had Giuliano Falonico, six four, two hundred ten pound linebacker from Samoa, who came in on an official visit this weekend. He's been committed to USC for quite some time, uh, kind of solidifying that recruitment. Also showing us that he's not going to be a blue shirt. You know, he came in on the official visit. And a guy that is, is ranked, you know, really high considering he's from Samoa and he doesn't play on the mainland. Um, so you know that he's got a lot of potential. But there's been talk here and there maybe he could play inside linebacker. I think after this weekend, USC eyeballing him again. I, I think he plays Sam linebacker. I don't think he's going to play inside. I think he ends up playing outside. He's pretty tall. He's pretty linear in terms of how he plays. I think he'll be a good player for USC, but he's not going to be an inside guy. So, again, USC's got to cultivate some options if uh, Taylor Katoa doesn't end up picking USC tomorrow. Well, we got a uh, bunch of questions to to get to. So we'll, I think that we'll just kind of direct the podcast through the questions and get your thoughts on everything. Um, you know, we did get an update from you. And we, we've had you on the last couple of weeks, right? We've had a couple in a row. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So we'll try to keep doing them, you know, just about every week. Maybe Christmas time will be a little crazy, but uh, we'll uh, we'll get them on. And, you know, of course, uh, USC football practice is starting this week that we can go out to. So I'm going to, right after this podcast, I'm going to head out and go to that. But let's jump into some of the questions, Gerard. we got our buddy Martin in Ontario. He says, it seems that USC gets a lot of recruits from certain positions from very specific areas, so like quarterbacks and offensive linemen. A lot of them come from Orange County, like Modern Day or Rancho Santa Margarita, Mission Viejo. Um, defensive backs and wide receivers, a lot of them from the L.A. area. Is this more from high school coaches developing players that are similar to USC's offense and defensive schemes so players are more aware of the schemes and are ready to play sooner, or does it really matter? Uh, fight on, Martin in Ontario. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with demographics. I think with the quarterback situation in Orange County schools, um, a lot of the top programs uh, that are the big-time programs in Southern California are in Orange County. Those big parochial programs like Modern Day, Santa Margarita, Servite, um, St. John Bosco is not Orange County, but it's kind of you know a little towards that area. Um, they're not really considered city schools. And they have the money, you know, to obviously build really good programs. And those big programs attract big-time quarterbacks. And that's just sort of how it all works out. Um, but, you know, USC's got a commitment from Matt Corral, who is a 2018 quarterback who's a five-star right now. He's from Oaks Christian. And so that's sort of in the valley. Um, so it, it's, it's yeah, I, I think, you know, there was always talk of the Orange County Mafia when it comes to the quarterbacks. <laughs> And um, the, the training systems that go on, the quarterback coaches, those off-season trainers um, being on Orange County. But I think it really it's revolving around those big-time programs that have been down there for many years and those programs uh, being kind of a, a form 
for those quarterbacks. You know, they can showcase those quarterbacks because they're good teams. They've got good offensive lines. They've got good uh, systems. They pass the ball well. Um, whereas I think coaching-wise, yeah, maybe you don't have the same level of coaching in other places because those schools may not be able to pay those coaches as well as some of those parochial programs. And if you don't have those coaches that are paid to be able to coach those systems, you're not going to have those really good passing pro-style type systems. Um, but, I mean, it's a generalization because, like I said, you've got guys like Matt Corral, you, you know, Oaks Christian, USC's gotten receivers out of Oaks Christian. Um, they've gotten players from, you know, really everywhere. Uh, offensive linemen, I think that sort of hit and miss. Again, you're going to see it's Southern California, Orange County is USC territory, and a lot of those big-time programs are there in, in South Orange County. And so you're going to have those linemen coming out of those areas, and, and that kind of sort of makes sense. Again, it's the big-time programs that are going to attract that. But, you know, Long Beach Poly is a program that has certainly uh, produced a lot of good players and a lot of players that end up at USC. Um, and the city schools in terms of a lot of defensive backs, uh, yeah, again, I guess demographics, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, where you're recruiting and the type of players that you're recruiting. Um, you know, city ball, you got a lot of really good athletes. Uh, but, again, I think the consistency of the coaching is very hit and miss. I mean, if you go to a city game – and you're going to just pick, you know, your average city teams and watch that game as opposed to, you know, a Southern Section CIF game, you're going to see a different level. And, again, it comes back to the schools and the support those schools have, the boosters, the people that are involved with the community that are going to put money towards that coaching staff. Um, it's just night and day when you're talking about, you know, St. John Bosco or you're talking about modern day compared to, you know, a school in the city section. Uh, they just don't have the budget. So, uh, again, that, that, that all kind of comes together. Um, in terms of uh, the, the coaching and the kids that are attracted to those programs because they know that they're going to A, get the coaching, and they're going to be in a system that's going to be successful to be able to showcase their skills. We have a question from Paul in Vegas, Gerard. He said, the best thing I've heard you say, I don't know if he was talking, it, it didn't say to you specifically, but if, I don't know if me or him or so maybe he's talking about us on the side, I don't know. But he said, the best thing I've heard you say about this coaching staff relative uh, to recruiting is that Clay Helton is good during home visits. Over the years, we've had some pretty good recruiters on staff, resulting in some great recruiting classes. Is it possible this staff is better at coaching than recruiting? And if there's any truth to this, it begs the question, uh, can we have a separate recruiting staff whose tasks are evaluating recruiting rather than coaching? Thanks, Paul in Las Vegas. It's definitely possible, and in terms of priorities, I think that Clay Houghton has been uh, kind of pushed towards making sure that he had a staff that could try to develop talent. I mean, he's been a part of two very, very good recruiting coaching staffs, Lane Kiffin's coaching staff and Steve Sarkeesian's coaching staff. So he's seen that angle. He's seen that side of a coaching staff where they are dynamic recruiters, but then they go out there and they win eight games. And the USC fan base is not really tolerant of that right now. I mean, it's been a lot of years of winning seven, eight games, and you had that one 11-game season in 2013. But the push is we got to get to Rose Bowl, we got to get double-digit wins. That's what the standard is for USC, and that's where the standard is for the USC fan base. And so I think there was at some point a decision that was made by him to say, you know what, I got to go out and get the best coaches I can. Um, recruiting at Southern California 
it's going to take care of itself to some extent. And I know, you know, people can look at three stars and they're going to whine and cry because UCLA got some guy that they didn't get, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, if you're coaching up those players and you're getting the most out of those players, uh, it doesn't matter if uh, another staff is able to get some five-star guy out of L.A., um, if they're not coaching that guy up, it just it doesn't matter. USC is going to be okay. They're going to win more games by developing the talent that they have on the roster because accidentally you're going to end up with some fairly talented guys. And maybe, they're, like I said, they're not four-star, five-star guys, but at the end of the day when they actually graduate from USC, we're going to have to see what type of production that they have at the college level. There's a lot of guys that are underrated in, in California. California in general just doesn't get the exposure that you get in the South with uh, even some of the smaller southern states. I mean, there's places in Alabama and, and um, you know, Georgia that get all kinds of exposure and coverage because football's so big down there. And obviously Texas is another place where football is really big and you get a lot of guys that get really hyped up. There's a lot of black, dark spaces on the map for Southern California and California in general when it comes to football. And people are just not tuned in to football, high school football, like they are in other places in the country. So you're going to pluck out some guys that are going to be three-star type guys that might end up being NFL-level guys. So, you know, the, the real thing that I think USC fans have been calling for for a long time um, since Pete Carroll has left is we need to develop the talent that is on the roster first and foremost. That is a huge, huge issue. And if we can do that, we're going to win football games. And when you win football games at USC, the recruiting will come. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's potential that this is a better coaching staff than it is a coaching staff that can recruit. Um, time will tell, obviously. I mean, we're going to see this offseason. We're going to see here uh, in February how everything works out. You know, last year, the last class, and it wasn't totally – Clay Helton's staff's class, so we can't really put too much onto it. But, you know, when he was named head coach and they had that stretch to to signing day in January, they ended up closing really strong, and they got good players. So, you know, we kind of have to wait. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves and say, oh, yeah, well, the staff can't recruit or the staff isn't that good at recruiting. We don't know that yet. Um, But I think that looking at the style and the approach, specifically from the defensive side of the ball, they are not as relentless and they are not um, getting the reviews from recruits that, let's say, Steve Sarkeesian's staff was. You're just not getting that buzz in terms of how much they're contacting kids and, and playing that game of, you know, how much love does USC give kids. Just, there just hasn't been that. And there's been too many instances where you've seen communication levels drop um, even before the season with recruits like Bubba Bolden and USC has to sort of scramble and get back on the horse when it comes to the contact and just making sure that these recruits know that, hey, we have a good relationship, we've got a good rapport, and we want you at USC. And so there's definitely been some criticism, and you know what, the proof is in the pudding, um, but we're going to see sort of when it matters here, you know, when we come up in the January, if they're able to close strong and all of that doesn't matter quite as much. Uh, the the sort of preseason um, during the season recruiting, if USC is able to sort of close strong. Um, and, again, what's helping that, obviously, momentum-wise, is their play on the field. So, you know, I, I think that's a big deal. And, you know, the answer kind of, I think the end of the question was, can they have a staff that's sort of an auxiliary staff that would recruit while the full-time staff is sort of coaching? Basically taking an NFL approach where you have your coaching staff 
that is coaching, you know, during the season and coaching even in the off season, and they really don't have a lot of in-person contact with guys that are draftees and, and guys that are potential prospects um, until you actually get to the combine. And the, really the scouting team is the one that has all the sort of legwork when it comes to evaluations and it comes to the, you know, kind of trying to size up each player. That is yet to really happen with the NCAA because the rules don't really allow it. The rules don't allow the support staff to go off campus and recruit unless you're in a situation where, like, USC didn't have any full-time coaching staff and those guys that were support staff had to take on those roles. You only get seven assistant coaches on the road at once, and USC wasn't even there with seven because they basically Clay Helton fired the whole defensive staff outside Peter Sherman. Um, so you had the guy, you guys like Kenyatta Hudson um, and, and Gavin Morris. Um, those guys were out on the road actually having to recruit uh, because they didn't have the full-time coaches to do that. USC has a full-time staff now this year, um, and unless there's some changes or some vacancies, uh, that full-time coaching staff is the one that's going to have to be on the road. Um, the NCAA doesn't allow to have that auxiliary staff, that support staff, to actually be on the road and do those things with in-home visits and all that kind of stuff, evaluations. But I think it's coming. I think that's what Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, these programs are already really sort of bracing for. Texas, uh, I think a lot of people were bracing for, okay, support staff are going to be the ones that are going to be on the road. They're the ones already DMing these kids. See, the thing is these kids are naive, and they think that, oh, I have this great relationship with Coach such-and-such. Well, you may talk with him on this phone maybe once a week, maybe every couple of weeks, but most of it nowadays is text messages and DMs. And guess what? It's not that assistant coach. It's not that assistant coach. It's some support staff guy. It could be a secretary in there. It could be some 20-year-old girl that's actually DMing this recruit <laughs> all during the day and talking about how great he is and, oh, my God, I wish you would come to, to, to this program because you're going to play and you're going to be so good. And it's not even the assistant coach. So, yeah, kids are kind of dumb, and, and they, they want the love, and they want to know who, who wants them the most. But that's really naive, and you don't really understand sort of how these things go and, and really who's actually talking to you the most, the relationship you have the most, um, you know, with each program. Because behind the scenes, it's a lot of DMing, and it's a lot of text messages, and, and the, the person-to-person contact is limited. Uh, but in the future, uh, like I said, I, I could see the NCAA sort of divvying that up where the full-time coaches are actually not the ones on the road. Then they'd actually be they're restricted, which they'd love. You know, they I don't know if there's a coach out there that would not like to be sort of more with the team and, and concentrate more on coaching and not have to deal with, you know, all these 17-year-old head cases and, and, and going out and, and hitting all these high schools and have to do that on top of it. It's It's a lot. And, and it's really time-consuming and, and sort of envelops you a little bit as a coach. And, and USC, I think, has done a good job pacing themselves. I think this staff knows that, you know, you're not going to have any recruiting titles in July, and they've paced themselves throughout the year. Um, but um, it's still, nonetheless, it's it's a lot, and, and you're working so much. I, I really I, – I always think about the families of these coaches in, uh, in college, and, and it's just – it must be really tough on them because – you're when you're not out there coaching and, and in meetings and doing film, you got to recruit and recruiting is 24 seven, 365 days a year. It certainly is. And uh, you got to be on it all the time. So we'll see. They closed strong last year. We'll see how this year goes, but it's going to be really important coming up uh, after the dead period ends. Let's uh, go to bear Secutor, GM. He said, uh, don't you think even for USC, we are heading into January with fewer verbal commitments in the current class, 2017, 
than usual at this late date, but more verbals for the next class, 2018, at an early date, uh, especially for local stars. Is this the result of a dreadful four-game streak between Wisconsin and the Utah games to start the season? Uh, and we lost traction with many kids looking at USC. That's from Bear Secutor. It's a combination of, of two things. I think, one, it's a combination of USC having a certain amount of commitments and then reevaluating their class and realizing not all those guys they have committed are the guys that they really want in this class. Um, I, I kind of went on a tangent, I think, last week about the early offers and the early commitments and how they're more and more meaningless each year. And it's a two-way street now. You know, the kids commit early, and then they reevaluate their options at the end of the year. They commit early, play the season. You know, if I blow up my knee, well, I've got an offer from this school, and I'm committed to this school, and they're going to have to take me because it will be bad PR if they don't take me. And so kids feel like there's a security blanket there if they make this commitment right before the season. But after the season, they get the itch to start, to start taking official visits and start looking at schools that might be better options for them. I want to weigh all my options here. I want to explore all of my options. Well, schools are doing that too. Schools are taking early commits, saying, okay, well, we don't know what kind of season we're going to have. We'll go through it. All of a sudden, they come out on the other end with, you know, a possible bowl bid. They're ranked in the top ten. They look at their class and say, we can do better. And that's what's happening. That's the cold, hard truth of it. And so USC is sort of addition by subtraction. And so you going to have some decommitments that's part of it they've, they've kind of they've lost i think three two three guys um since the beginning of the season and so you're going to have less guys to start with they also i think are pacing themselves that's sort of the second part of it i don't think usc feels like they need to have uh, a certain amount of you know commits any point during the year um, i think they feel like they can close and I think with the, a year like this where you've got, you know, almost a full class, um, they, they feel like they want to be able to have some room so they can really try to go hard in January. Um, but you know what? That's a calculated risk because you are giving up guys like maybe a Daniel Green, who is, you know, 6'3", 225-pound linebacker that was committed from Portland, three-star, uh, a guy that on film shows up really well. And he had some great issues. But I also hear that he wasn't necessarily playing to the level of a USC linebacker. And so you let a guy like that go, you got to have an option. And, and a good example right here is Taylor Katoa. And we talked about Taylor Katoa um, just got done with his official visit to Utah. Um, he's going to decide uh, tomorrow uh, as to where, where he's going to go. He's going to be an early enrollee, so it's not going to be like, well, he's going to commit, but then you're going to have all of January to recruit him. Uh, no, he's going to commit, and then he's going to roll in January. So, you know, it's the dead period's pretty much going to be end game for him. If USC loses out on him, then you go, okay, well, you gave up a guy like Daniel Green. Maybe you should have held on to him a little longer um, if you don't have better options on the table. So, you know, we're seeing all this sort of develop, and USC has been, for the most part, successful in recruiting when they've been aggressive. When they've been aggressive and they've had plans in place and they've executed those plans and didn't sit back and wait. If there was one issue with Lane Kiffin's staff, and I, I think, you know, Clay Helton probably saw this, is that sometimes they would sit back and they would wait a little bit too much. And they ended up, you know, with I think 12 commits in one class, and that was during the sanction years, so they didn't have a ton of, of, of uh, 
rise in spots available in those classes, but they still ended up having, I think, two or three rides left over in that class. So they fell short. You can't do that, especially in sanctions. And so I think, you know, this coaching staff has, has seen that and they've understood um, maybe looking at what Steve Sarkeesian did and that staff was sort of the opposite. They always had a plan ready. They always were moving forward on something. And, and if, if Adore Jackson wasn't coming, they had this other guy. They had, you know, Charles uh, Nelson there that, that they could bring in. They, they were always, you know, bringing as many guys um, with official visits, try to cultivate as many options as possible. And if at the end of the day we got to turn somebody away, that's much better than being in a spot where we don't have a quality option at the end of the day. Um, you know, I, I, when, I, when I knew that Steve Sarkeesian's coaching staff was on top of it in terms of strategy when it comes to recruiting is when they recruited Jalen Green, and they brought Jalen Green into that class at the last minute. They stole him away from Washington, and he came in, and I think he visited. Um, or He didn't really take a visit. He took an unofficial visit, and he actually went out to the Las Vegas Bowl and watched that game and then ended up committing to USC. Now, USC had um, – I think they, what they wanted to do was get four was it no they had three spots I think open for early enrollees and the big question was what was going to go on with Claude Pelon Claude was the guy that was sort of teeter-tottering and that staff needed to make sure that they got that early enrollee spot in you wanted to get as much out of that class as possible and if they put all their cards on Claude Pelon and he didn't commit then there would have been that 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 basically that spot would have evaporated because it was an early enrollee spot. So what they did was they were aggressive and they got Jalen Green committed. Now, they ended up getting Claude Pelin on, on top of that, but it was one of those things that, you know what, even in hindsight that they got him and you kind of brought in Jalen Green, a lot of people go, well, you know, you kind of wasted a scholarship maybe on Jalen Green, you didn't need Jalen Green. That was still the right call at that point in time because you just didn't know what was going to happen with Claude. And, and that, that aggressive approach always worked out for USC. It always seemed to be the better approach in recruiting and help them more than sitting back and waiting and, and, and putting all your cards just maybe on one option. So I think that's sort of what Clay Helton is doing. I think they're being aggressive. I think they're pushing forward. Um, but we're going to see if it comes out. Again, you know, we just talked about this. They did close well last year, but that was sort of a quasi – Clay Helton, Steve Sarkeesian t- still year. This year is going to be, okay, how does this strategy for this coaching staff work, and are they going to be able to make up, you know, and get a full, a full class out of uh, this, uh, this, this class, a full, you know, we're talking 23, 24 guys, maybe more than that. Um, there might be some blue shirts involved. There, there's going to be a full class because you're going to have maybe some transfers. You're going to have some early defections to the NFL. Um, so there's going to be some spots opened up. So um, I, I can see that there's a little bit of nervous USC fans out there. I, I'm getting sort of these questions here and there. Uh, but is it totally unusual? Are we setting any precedent? No. No, we're not. And I think, uh, again, it has to do with just um, USC sort of you know, having a good season, wanting to pivot a little bit on some of these prospects that they have committed, and then in addition to that, um, just pacing themselves and, and kind of knowing that, you know, a lot can happen in January, and, you know, you can have guys like Jamel Cook that come out of the woodwork that all of a sudden want to visit, and boom, you get a commitment. Yeah, that was he was someone we saw last year at the uh, Army game. Um, we've talked about that in the podcast before. 
Let's uh, Reggie in Seattle. He said, Ryan, I was listening to the podcast with Gerard Martinez, and he was discussing the odds of USC being able to land top defensive linemen from around the country. My question is, Utah appears to have no problem finding great defensive linemen. Why won't USC follow their approach and start recruiting more poly guys, uh, guys that can develop as opposed to going after all these top guys from the South? Reggie uh, in Seattle. Fight on, he said. Hey, I, I, I agree with that. And, and they have done that to some extent. Um, I don't know. First, you got to have some good connections in Utah and with the Polynesian community to be able to recruit that community. And obviously, Utah being in Utah, it's very easy for them to do that. Same with BYU. Um, you got to get those kids away from home, so you've got to develop a connection and a relationship. So you have to have some connections and some relationships within that community. Johnny Nansen is the lone really kind of Polynesian recruiter for USC, and he is recruiting those kids in USC with Steve Sarkeesian, and that staff being a little more, having a little better foothold in Utah. Obviously, Steve Sarkeesian played at BYU, so he's got connections there. You had Johnny Nansen on the staff. You also have Marquis Tuiasasopo on the staff. That staff really recruited Utah hard and recruited Utah well because, remember, they got Porter Veston and they got Osa Messina both from Utah. Those guys were very top players. They weren't just top players in Utah, but nationally. So they did put a lot of offers into Utah when that staff was active. Not so many this year, and and, they, and the staff does did go up to the Old Poly camp, and that's a camp during the summer, which is a full-pad camp that they have in Utah um, and they did go up there and they did, you know, do some work and I'm sure they evaluated some guys and they've made some offers in Utah. Uh, certainly I think USC over the past few years has had probably double the amount of offers in Utah than Pete Carroll's staff. Uh, but again, you gotta have those connections and a lot of those kids are under the radar type kids. Uh, defensive linemen specifically and they're under the radar mainly because you may get a guy that comes out of uh, you know 6'2", 250 and then by the time he's a sophomore in college he's 300 pounds um, and so you don't get a lot of light shined on those kids in Utah and you have to know you know you have to sort of know bloodlines and sort of you know who are these kids that can really grow and you know what what, what do their parents look like and did his dad play ball and you, you just have to have all that background information and that's about relationships and rapport and that sort of kind of make or break if you can recruit Utah. But I agree that certainly uh, I think it would be much easier to do that if you're USC and establish that with USC, seeing that they do have a great Polynesian tradition at USC in football, uh, then going down south and trying to get these mama's boys that are from Alabama and from South Carolina and Texas these guys just don't leave, and and we've seen that. That's just been you know sort of the the, the paradigm you know since USC's recruited nationally under Pete Carroll, and you know you're looking at those staffs and looking at the run that USC made and how many offers they had out to kids in the South that were defensive tackles and the, the big O four that they had. I mean they just didn't get a lot of those guys. Um, you know, all through those years where USC was you know king of the world when it came to college football. So you look at it now. And it still seems tough, and it would seem that regionally you could definitely go and find guys, even in the north northwest. I, I think there's guys in Washington and Oregon, and we've seen that. I mean, USC has, has offered uh, Brandon Peely, who's a 6'3", 300-pound defensive tackle, guys originally from Alaska and just came down to Portland this past year to play in Portland to get more exposure. Well, it certainly worked. He's got offers from Notre Dame, USC, Washington, uh, Oregon, um, guys like that, you know, that are three stars. And, and, again, we go back to the kind of the fan base complaining about three stars, but 
you know, the truth of the matter is the three-star, you don't necessarily know what you're getting out of the West Coast from a three-star. You could get a guy that's very underrated. Uh, you could get a guy that ends up being a real gem because there are just places on the map that don't have the exposure that you have in other places in the country, places like Texas and, and Florida where, you know, football is just it's, it's bigger. And so you're going to hear more about those kids. And um, so I, I think, you know, one thing that Steve Sarkeesian's staff did well is that they definitely cultivated a lot more options on the West Coast. There was a lot more guys on the West Coast in California, up and down the West Coast, where I think they did good research, really trying to find prospects and recruiting aggressively those prospects. Um, whereas I think with Lane Kiffin's staff, the problem they had is they were fixated on the SEC. They were fixated on going into Florida. They were fixated on going into Georgia and recruiting a bunch of those players. And you, not just in addition to can we get those guys, but there's also the aspect of do those guys fit in our system? Do they fit the culture of USC? Do they fit the culture of Los Angeles? Are they going to be happy here? Obviously you had a, a situation there with EJ Price that he just didn't fit USC. So you went out there and you busted your butt to get a, a good four-star uh, offensive tackle, a guy that looked like he was going to contribute USC, but the off-field issues didn't fit the program. So you lose them, and that doesn't help. So you, you definitely have to keep – in consideration that uh, aspect of things, just the recruits. They're not only the guys you see on the field, but how they are prospects off the field and whether they fit. And I think with uh, with Utah and, and the Northwest and just the Western region in general, I think it's easier to recruit those kids and bring them in and have less issues as a whole with them. We got uh, Tarek had a couple questions. Uh, first, he said, where do we stand with Levi Jones? Uh, USC is in very good standing with Levi Jones. I would say USC leads for Levi Jones right now, uh, but he's got to take that official visit in January, and we'll see what happens after that point. And then for uh, Taylor Katoa, if he commits to USC, do you see him competing with Michael Hutchins uh, for his vacated spot? Not with Michael Hutchins, for, for Michael Hutchins' vacated spot immediately, or do you see him as a guy that would take time to develop? He could take some time to develop. This was his first season playing inside linebacker. He actually played predominantly quarterback. That was actually what he was as a prospect his first couple of years in high school, and he played some defensive end. And I think then when the offers weren't coming as a quarterback and he started working out on defense and more schools were coming in and interested him as a defender, that's when he started playing inside. And he worked one-on-one with Johnny Nansen at the Old Poly camp over the summer. So, again, when you're talking about relationships and everything, um, you know, USC's putting a good foot forward, trying to get in there and trying to, you know, maintain a foothold in Utah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think inside is where he's going to play. And I think, yeah, that Michael Hutchings position is where he's going to play and compete. But can he contribute early at that position? That's another question because, again, he hasn't played much inside linebacker. Um, physically, he could. He's, he's sort of in that in that conversation, 6'2", 225 now. Um, I think he was listed at like 215 for a while, but he's actually up around 226. So he's got some size on him, but it's a man position. You know, you play inside linebacker, you're going to be taking on uh, some some guards, and you're going to be taking on some offensive linemen. Not so many lead blocks and fullbacks anymore uh, with all these spread offenses, but uh, still taking on those 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 offensive linemen. you got to be a grown-ass man to play that position. And certainly – from the standpoint of understanding the defense. And, and you know, Clancy Pendergast being an NFL guy, uh, this defense is probably above average in terms of the learning curve. So 
you know, there's, it's kind of against him playing early. Um, but, you know, you look at, like I said, the depth chart and what USC has there, you have an injury or two, and it really is not a matter of can he. It's going to be uh, how well he plays because he's going to be forced in that position. So, um, you know, that, that obviously is dependent on things. But in a perfect world, I could see him probably being more of a special teams guy and maybe not playing right away uh, just because I think you'd want him to physically develop and certainly from a – a mental standpoint, understanding the position, probably getting a year, um, you know, being able to just kind of learn behind somebody and then, you know, hitting the ground running as a sophomore. Um, he is LDS, but he's not going to take his Mormon mission out of high school. Uh, he's going to wait. And, and I think, you know, when usually when kids wait, they don't take that mission. So we'll see how that works out. But, um, I would think that uh, a year with him kind of learning more than being thrown right into the fire would definitely be beneficial. We got one last one for you, Gerard. Eric in Duck Country says, I noticed that Darnay Holmes wears number five. Do you think that Clay Helton could offer him the number five jersey? I know sometimes that sort of thing is a big deal for recruits. Uh, if not, when do you think we'll see someone wearing number five in the future? I think it's been long enough. Thanks, Eric in Duck Country. It is a big deal, and it would be a huge deal if USC were to do that. But I don't think that's in Clay Helton's hands. I don't think that it's up to him. I think that's the administration, and they still are clinging to this idea that, you know, Reggie Bush was uh, this big cheater and, and, you know, did so many bad things and marred the university with his actions. Um, and until they get over that, until that becomes, they they can sort of rationalize that you know he. Uh, I, I don't want to get in that debate of what, what how how wrong he was and what he did and and comparing it to all these other situations at the other schools that seem to happen um, biannually <laughs> and and nobody getting in trouble for any of it. Um, I, again, it's going to fall on the university. It's going to fall on the athletic director. It's going to really fall probably on the president, maybe even the board of trustees, as to having a vote as to whether um, they reinstate number five. I mean, it was a Heisman Trophy winning number, and we know that USC retires Heisman Trophy uh, winning numbers, but it was stripped also. So technically it wasn't a Heisman Trophy winning number um, in the eyes of uh, the NCAA certainly, and USC to this point has has viewed it in that same that same fashion. So um, that's going to be the big issue. Uh, it's going to be whether the 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 people in Heritage Hall feel as though uh, that number can be um, you know put back into circulation, if you will. Um, it, it's it's sort of one of those things though. Like it, it's one or the other. You can't kind of have your cake and eat it too. You can't say well. This isn't a number that's retired because we stripped that that Heisman Trophy is no longer recognized. But then at the same time, say that somebody can't wear it, and it's like, well, why can't you wear it if it's not a a a, a retired number? Then and if it's just another number because you're trying to forget the guy who wore it uh, as much as possible, then just put it back out there. But if you're not putting it back out there, then it has to have some significance. So you know, I don't know. That's uh. I guess that's another can of worms, but um, I don't think it's up to Clay Helton whether that number five uh, ends up back on the roster or not. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe down the road for a Clay Helton, it could. He's not going to be anyone that's going to 
rock the boat. Yeah, he's not a rocking the boat kind of guy right now. So that's just you know, not at all. He might be not at, at all, some yeah. point, but he is not right now. So I don't see him going to Lynn Swan like you know what we really want to get number five unretired, and even like a Lynn Swan probably wouldn't feel comfortable making a decision like that at this point too. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't see that happening anytime real soon. Who knows if that, you know, the team starts winning again, uh, the McNair lawsuit goes forward, you know, whatever. I mean, there, there's opportunity, but I don't think it's right now. And USC just from a baby step standpoint, I mean, you got to get Reggie Bush back on campus. You know, that, that has yet to happen where Reggie Bush has really been embraced and, you know, recognized as an alum. They're still sort of pretending like he's been sort of banished without necessarily being banished. Um, and I get it. I understand. I mean, I understand it. I don't want to minimalize it and, and and act like, you know, he didn't do anything wrong and, and he wasn't selfish and, and he didn't really jeopardize um, the the image and prestige of the university with his actions because he did, certainly. But you know, you also have to look at the grand scheme of things and, and you have to sort of compare it. And are you handicapping yourself and, and really, you know, sort of punishing yourself like USC did in so many ways, you know, on top of sanctions? And it was just, you know, we're going to just take it to the nth degree here and we're going to do everything and then some. And then you look at these other situations going around in college football and they're egregious. And the NCAA has done nothing. And the NCAA has just turned a cheek. And it's basically the NCAA is really not the NCAA anymore. I mean, it's kind of sort of um, people feel like it's sort of on its last dying breath here. Um, probably in the next, I don't know, five, six years maybe it starts to change and you're getting more and more pay for play and you're getting all these other things that are coming in that are, that are, that are threatening what the NCAA is in an organization. So certainly the teeth that they used to have, um, they've been kind of knocked out a little bit. And you've seen just so many universities just lining up to sort of, you know, walk the line and, and push the envelope in terms of what is legal and not legal. And at every turn, the NCAA is balked on really punishing anybody. And so, you know, USC, they, they like I said, they, they went to the nth degree and, and they, they went above and beyond in terms of the punishment. And it, it was sort of retroactive. And maybe that's part of it because a lot of universities now they just take their self punishment and they you know they 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 dock themselves a half a scholarship or whatever and everybody's like okay that's cool you guys did it ahead of time you realized that you were wrong and so you did that and and then they don't get punished by the NCAA for it and USC didn't do that so maybe that's part of the issue that USC you know after the fact decided that they were going to punish themselves on top of sanctions but the problem was they got the sanctions. So it's like, you know, you listen, I mean, it's a little late now, you, you know, take the sanctions, but don't make it worse for yourself and make all these rules for yourself. And, you know, they, they, they sort of overdid the compliance, I think to a large extent. And the thing with Reggie Bush, you know, I mean, there's nothing saying that Reggie Bush can't be on campus. There's nothing saying that Reggie Bush can't, you know, talk to the team or you can't acknowledge that, you know, he is a, a, a live human being and still existing on this earth and that he was one of the uh, focal points of a championship run and, and a guy that's idolized by a lot of players that are on campus now and still idolized even by recruits. So, you know, I mean, it, it's it, nowhere in the sanctions did it actually say, you know, you, you couldn't still acknowledge that guy. Certainly, um well, USC had to disassociate itself. USC had to disassociate from Reggie Bush, so they they can't put his likeness up and stuff like that. But they but but as far as having him on campus 
and recognizing that, I mean, having him in the, 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 the locker room and, and just, you know, having him around and acknowledging him that way is what I mean. Yeah. They, they went above and beyond to sort of kind of wipe him from, you know, all, all, all memory. And, and it just, it just seems like it's kind of silly at this yeah. point. Like, you know, no matter what, I mean, what, it's not, not like he did something so horrible that, you should never be ever around. I mean, like, how could you just say, how can the NCAA say, yeah, don't ever talk to this guy again or don't, it just doesn't make any sense, but we don't want to go down that, uh, rabbit hole. That's, uh, that's crazy. But yeah, I, I think. Yeah, that's the, a Dan Weber podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which we'll have him on tomorrow, but there, there's, there's more. I think more will be coming in the next couple of years and stuff like that. But just right now, uh, Darnay Holmes, probably not. Um, all right, well, Gerard, good stuff. Uh, I got to head over to go to practice now, but uh, glad we could get you on and chat about Trojan football. Yeah, uh, I'll probably be down to practice tomorrow, and uh, we'll see how the team is looking, and we'll see how many practices now. How many practice dates are they getting in? Because we know that was controversy last year. They only had what seven, and they had fifteen allotted. Are they having more? Like uh, I think I found like eleven um, this 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 off season. Is that about accurate? No, you know, I think it's going to be, well, it depends what you count as a practice. And we, we've talked about this on the Peristyle a little bit. I might have some war room stuff on this too, but, uh, yeah, there's, uh, the USC fans shouldn't worry. There's, uh, much, many more practices than what you've seen last year and more of a regular schedule. There's like, you know, three a week that we can go to, but then there's also a couple that we won't be at. So there's, there should be plenty of time for this team to be working out, getting ready for Penn State. Yeah, they had a practice Saturday where they brought uh, a few underclassmen recruits in, and uh, that was close to the media as well. So, um, yeah, they're they're working even when we're not allowed to be working. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, that's Gerard Martinez. Uh, check him out on Twitter at Gmart Live. Uh, you can follow me on check Twitter. Check me out on the Peristyle. That's where you want to. See, we get questions, but these questions are this is this is this is light work. You know, I mean, the, the, Peristyle, the Peristyle is buzzing. Yeah. yeah, I came on this morning and there was like, you know, 15 GM <laughs> threads on there. So it's like, okay, got a lot of questions today. But Gerard's always on the peristyle answering questions. So especially this time of year, that's basically what his job is. So, um, but check it out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Inside Troy. Hope you guys enjoyed this edition of the Peristyle podcast. We'll have Dan Weber on tomorrow talking about the first day of practice and all that. So hope you enjoyed it. We will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.